0: Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Powell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host.
1: Beringer-Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans, and when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients: the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Baringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com/equine.
0: Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the AAP Practice Life Podcast. I'm Mike Powell, and once again, joined by Jessica Dunbar. Hi, hey, Jessica.
2: Hi, Mike. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. I always love this subject, this podcast. We do at the beginning of the year. We sort of revisit the Business News Hour. I was involved with it for so long that I just love how so many new faces on it. It seems like it's still a really popular subject. So why don't you uh, introduce our great guest? Before we do that, I also got to always remember and I'm very thankful for giving thanks to Beringer Engelheim for their support for the AEP Practice Life podcast. It's great to have partners like that. Over to you, Jessica.
2: Yes, thank you to BI. Thanks, Mike. Would like to start by introducing our guests today who organized the Business News Hour presentation at our annual convention. Thanks to you veterinarians. First we have Dr. Jean Tan from Canada.
3: Thank you for having us on again. It's always a pleasure to talk about Business News Hour every year. My name, as we said, is Jean Yintan. I'm a board certified equine internal medicine specialist. I have my MBA as well. 2005 Cornell grad, did a private practice internship at Mid-Atlantic and a large general medicine residency at University of Minnesota. And then I was in ambulatory practice in California, New Jersey. Owned a referral and ambulatory clinic in Upstate New York for almost five years, and I came to Calgary in 2015. So I'm an associate professor at University of Calgary. I lead the clinical skills and the business program there.
2: Wonderful! You have some broad experience. Thank you for joining us today, and let's shift over to Dr. Stacy Cordovano from Pennsylvania. Tell us about your practice, Stacy.
4: Sure. Hi. Thanks again for having us. Uh, my name is Stacy. I am a General practitioner, uh, no reproduction in our practice. I was solo for 11 years. We're now a two doctor practice, although maybe one and a half doctor. I'm a part timer. We are in Chester County, Pennsylvania. And I have two little boys that keep me busy after hours. And um, thanks for having us.
2: Thank you very much. Sounds like you're busy with the two little boys. So I'd like to introduce as well Kelly Zatunian from California. Uh, Kelly, would you please uh, tell us about your practice?
5: Sure. Thanks for having me. I have a two location, currently five and a half doctor practice that covers the greater Bay Area, mostly sport horse, but we do a little bit of everything.
0: I'll hand it over to you, Mike. There was a lot in this presentation. I don't know how you fit it in in the whole hour. And I remember reviewing and just like, this, this is cool. I'm excited to do this. I don't know if there were people that sort of ran specific sections, but I'm just thinking, let's just go through the sections and who wants to chime in can chime in if somebody was responsible for the slides. But I just want to go through each of the sections and and talk about some of the specific findings. And honestly, what surprised you or what made you go, wow, I had no idea as you were doing research, putting this together. So, well, let's start uh, with the state of the veterinary industry. A couple of things as I was, I was looking at the presentation, the state of the equine industry, jumps in revenues. So who wants to lead with this one?
3: You know, there's always good news, and then there's always a little bit of a balance of reality check. And so I think it was really great that we had a huge jump in median gross revenue. As I mentioned in that presentation, we went from four hundred fifty thousand dollars in 2021 to seven hundred seventy five thousand dollars in 2022. So that's obviously very good news for us. I think when you dive in a little bit further into the numbers, I think that's where Stacey Kelly and I, we really dug deep into some of the numbers and the statistics we got and got a little farther into why things are the way they are. And so a couple of things about that jump in revenue. One of them is that we are still far below the revenue of small animal and mixed animal practice. So they all gross about $1.2 million and we're at $775,000. So that's kind of one damper on that piece of good news. And then when you scrutinize that even more, you realize that across the board, veterinary visits actually decreased a little bit. And so what that means to me is that increase in revenue is likely from increased pricing rather than more horses being seen and, you know, more clients being seen. And then also a contribution from inflation, which was six and a half percent in 2022. So, you know, kind of good news balanced by a little bit of a reality check there.
0: So just to clarify, when you talked about the median gross revenue by practice type, is that per vet or per practice?
3: I'm actually not 100% positive. I believe that's per practice, but I would have to check
0: Because that would make sense because, you know, I mean, what, 60, 70% of AEP members are in a solo practice. And so, you know, a one vet practice, that would make sense. Whereas companion animal, even mixed animal, it's more of a group or one or two vets.
3: Yeah, that's a good point. Looking at this, it says median gross revenue by practice type. So perhaps a little unclear and something I'll have to check into a little bit more. But that's a very good point.
4: Those numbers come from the AVMA Economic Report. That is an odd way to report it. Another, you know, thing to consider, which isn't rocket science, but the fact that we have to travel and lose so much time, I yes. think that you know is going to be a hurdle for us to consider long term.
0: But I think the important thing, from what I'm looking at it, is just within equine practice, over a three hundred thousand annual jump. So there are some good factors that either, well, on one hand, we may be charging more, like you suggested. Or just because of the shortage of vets, we may be working more too.
4: We definitely are working more. Probably both true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both true. I think we'll also see that play into salary as we kind of go on in the conversation. I think that leads into that. So for sure.
0: Anything else uh, in that whole section of uh, the state of the veteran industry? You know, he's talked a lot about raising wages, and I know we're going to get into compensation uh, later on. But uh, I, I thought it was interesting that forty-three percent did a four to six percent. That was the biggest group of uh, wage increases compared to the inflation rate of twenty twenty-two, was six point five percent. So kept on par with inflation, at least.
3: Yeah, definitely, and you know, and that's where it became important to look at real income versus nominal income because when you see the salaries reported, it sounds like we had a major increase, but then when you look taking into account inflation, it's actually about the same. So like you said, keeping in par, I'd say the only other thing that jumped out at me is the fact that we all know inventory costs, everything has been increasing over the last couple of years since the pandemic, probably supply chain disruptions, you know, increased price of imports, global inflation, things like that. So I think what's relevant to equine veterinarians in particular is that we're pretty reliant on pharmacy and vaccines in mobile practice. So that accounts for about 14 and 11% of our revenue. And so keeping that in mind, you know, as raising the prices of those appropriately, trying to concentrate more on services, I think those things will help tide you through as you deal with increases in inventory costs.
0: And last uh, question on this section here, it was interesting uh, looking at the thoroughbred industry, uh, combination of increase in sale prices, full crop decline, Uh, Anything else that came up in your research on this section?
4: Admittedly, neither of the three of us are very familiar with the thoroughbred industry. None of us work in the industry at all. But we did think it was important to keep that note in there. And I did speak with a couple of people who do work in the industry. And, you know, I think the general consensus, uh, at least in my part of the country, is that potentially those sales numbers are misleading in the fact that they can be overinflated by certain buyers and they were more concerned about the full crop decline as more of an indicator of the industry.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's I was looking at that and I'm just like that when you have less of something, you know, scarcity increase in prices, but you're right, there are some big buyers that will skew things. Interesting.
2: Let's go ahead and shift topics now uh, over to discussion on legislation. Would like to bring up xylazine and what's going on with any legislation uh, since xylazine has become a problem as a street drug. Can either of you chat about xylazine and how that impacts equine veterinarians?
4: Sure. I mean, I think for a little while there, it was all very scary, and we were concerned that we were going to have a hard time getting it. I think things have regulated a bit now. I think the biggest thing to note is that veterinarians are exempt from that eight-hour opioid training. And that was a big question that I've seen on the listserv and things like that. So that's a big one to note. I think it is an important thing to do because um, as someone who lives near a big city, the crisis is real and anything we can do to help other human beings is great. But I do not think that based on current legislation and the way that they've made exemptions for us, our lives are going to have to change all that drastically, which is great. The other thing to note, though, is that trends like this will probably continue to get stricter. North Carolina enlisted a controlled substance around gabapentin. So, you know, that's something certainly small and all people use a lot, but we do as well. So I think that these trends are probably only going to continue.
2: Well, thanks for keeping us posted on that. And then we'll shift over to a different topic regarding mid-level practitioners Can you talk to us about that and what your takeaway is?
4: Yes. So earlier in 2023, this idea of a mid-level practitioner was brought up to the AVMA House of Delegates. It would be similar to like a nurse practitioner or a PA. We are used to seeing those in our human practices probably. And the general consensus from AVMA and AAP is that it is a position that's not really warranted at this time. They both feel like we are underutilizing our current support staff, technicians, and assistants, and that introducing a mid level practitioner would make things more complicated and potentially limit salary increases for our other support staff. That being said, it is a state by state decision. So, Arkansas did pass legislation to allow for a veterinary technologist, which is kind of that mid level practitioner idea. And so, it will depend on your state. Interesting. Thanks for keeping us posted on that.
2: Let's talk about non-competes. Looks like there's talk of banning non-competes and that's in multiple states. So where where is this going?
4: Probably not going anywhere very quickly. <laughs> the Federal Trade Commission did propose a ban and a couple other regulatory agencies have sort of condemned the idea of it just because it interferes with people able to Make wages. And the problem is that none of those are actually regulatory agencies that can enforce laws. And so most people think it's going to be held up in court. The FTC has a vote coming up this spring, later this spring. But that being said, the thought is that it'll still be held in additional legislation or additional legal issues for the foreseeable future. We thought it was important to note, though, because Tide is turning in what people are willing to accept in contracts, and I think that people need to start thinking more creatively about ways to protect their intellectual property or retain associates rather than just locking them in with this non-compete that doesn't allow them to change positions and may potentially force great equine vets into small animal positions.
2: Okay, so no changes at this point, but perhaps this sparks good conversation about how to maintain employees' longevity. I love that you had a section on well being in the workplace. It's so important. Can we talk about your slides there in the presentation about what is an equitable workplace?
3: Absolutely. We get some comments occasionally from people who say, What does equity have to do with business? And I would say it has everything to do with business because retention, satisfaction, even entry of People interested in equine practice into this market—they all ride on, you know, workplace satisfaction and well-being. And so, an equitable workplace is a workplace where you intentionally make sure that the people who work there have access to the support, the treatment, the opportunities that they need to succeed in the workplace. So, language is really important. And so, we say equity as opposed to equality. And I think it's important to differentiate that. Equality means that everybody gets the same treatment. It means that I wear size five shoes. So I give Mike size five shoes. I give Jessica and Stacy size five shoes. Probably doesn't do you any good. (laughs) Definitely not setting you up for success. So I, I think of it too as like, you know, you have a barn and you're like, okay, well, every horse gets one scoop of grain and two flakes of hay. Regardless of their circumstances. Well, we all know as vets, if you've got a racehorse, they probably need some extra sweet feed or oats. Alfalfa hay for extra energy. You have a horse with equine metabolic syndrome; they might need their hay soaked in a ration balancer instead of regular grain. Heaves horse; they might need steamed hay. You know, like if we want our horses to be successful, we need to tailor our treatment and our diets towards them. So, same thing with equity versus equality. You're giving people what they need in order to succeed.
2: Oh, I love that. Thank you for differentiating.
0: That's a great way of analyzing it. Thank you.
2: And then you had a few slides on discrimination, and I would really like to hear about that. Genian. go for it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I think that the slides on discrimination are particularly shocking because it, it basically a study in 2023 surveyed vet students on whether or not they had experienced or seen discrimination in the workplace, and 40% of them had. I think the saddest part of the study was finding out that 40% of the perpetrators were the supervising veterinarians. So probably the people who hold the most power in that entire power dynamic. There's a quote that I put on the slide. For example, one farm vet told a female vet student when she came out that she wouldn't make a good farm or mixed animal vet because She's less able to do manual tasks and would have babies that wouldn't be conducive to her being on call. So that's the kind of attitude that really discourages people from entering equine practice and also discourages them from staying in it. So I think it's extremely important for us to be conscientious of how we treat our colleagues and vet students when they visit our practices and send kind of a good message about. You know, we know that we have a workforce issue in gaining enough equine veterinarians, and we need to be able to reflect on ourselves and see how we're perpetuating that.
2: Well, thank you for bringing that up. It's something for us all to be aware of and conscientious about, like you said. Thank you. Let's shift over to professional stereotypes. You had a slide about comparing small animal to equine. Tell me about that.
3: Yeah, this one was kind of a fun one. So As I mentioned earlier, we always wonder why don't so many students want to enter equine practice. And I think this study from 2022 sheds some light on that. So they basically surveyed a large group of veterinary type people. So veterinarians, students, staff as well, and they just asked them to use one word, one adjective to describe. Small animal practitioner, equine practitioner, or production animal practitioner. And then they created a word cloud out of it and did a sentiment analysis. And they found that small animal general practitioners are described as caring and friendly, kind and compassionate. Production animal practitioners were strong, tough, hardy, and practical. And then equine veterinarians were described negatively. So this took place in the UK. So over 80% of people described equine veterinarians as posh. And then over 50% as arrogant. <laughs> and then the other adjectives were brave, confident, hardworking, snobby, and crazy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
4: So, not a really good reputation. <laughs> I, the, the whole audience chuckled because we can't argue with a lot of those things.
0: I don't know about posh, but crazy. <laughs> crazy,
4: definitely.
2: Oh, my goodness. I love it. Thanks for putting that slide in there. That was great, I, I think. And then let's talk about the gender wage gap. There were some surprising things there.
3: Yeah, I think the two things that stood out for me were kind of the myth-busting things. So there's the one myth, and I myself have repeated this before, and now I feel badly about it, but I've repeated this before in my business lectures, that women don't get raises because they don't ask. That has been the prevailing sentiment for like the last 20 years, is that women aren't assertive enough, they have low expectations, they don't know their worth. But a 2023 study came out that completely myth busted this idea. So they found that women negotiate their salaries more often than men. They just get turned down more often. And this trend actually started way back in 2007. So it's kind of sad that we haven't known about that until now. If you dive further into the numbers, 54% of women negotiate their job offers compared to 44% of men. So we need to stop with the victim blaming that women don't negotiate and address the actual cause of the issue. The other myth that I hear a lot is that women are not as ambitious as men and that you know perhaps they don't want to work as hard. And that was another myth that was busted in 2023. We had a study that showed that women of all ages value their career equally to men. And in fact, for those under 30, women find it even more important than men do. And then if we dive into women of color, they are majorly underrepresented in higher levels, but they are even more ambitious than white women and white men with 88% wanting to be promoted.
4: We got a couple of comments that attendees weren't expecting to come to the business news hour and hear about the gender wage gap and discrimination and things like that. And I think that that shows us that we are presenting the right stuff because this is so important. And for people to come and not understand that this is going to be integral in their practices continuing to thrive shows us that we are talking about the right topics because this is so important and it is very related to profitability and things like that. So, absolutely.
3: Exactly. We're a profession that's getting more and more dominated by females, right? And the more we don't tailor our opportunities and expectations to allow them to succeed, the more we're not going to do well in practice.
2: Mm -hmm. It's very, very important to talk about it. And I know the compensation committee was talking about the gender wage gap as well. And I I think there's just more to come. But they had some interesting findings this past year as well. Okay, let's talk about burnout. Such a relevant word at this point. What did you find uh, relevant about burnout um, that you presented?
4: Well, we could probably do several hours of podcasting Hmm. on burnout in veterinary medicine. I think we have all talked about it before. But the really important thing that we wanted to highlight was a study that came out in 2022 from both Cornell and the AVMA economics division that showed that burnout in veterinary medicine costs the entire industry between $1 and $2 billion. And that seems like some made up number, but it's actually just based on turnover costs and replacement costs. And they used a, in my opinion, based on the other research, a fairly conservative number. So they're assuming that for every veterinarian or staff member that you lose, it costs 66% of their annual salary to replace them. So that is a lot of turnover and other costs associated with that. So if you are, a practice owner or interested in growing a business, you need to be paying attention to burnout because that is costing you money. There's just no way around that. And so we highlighted that. And then we also, we didn't want to sit up there and lecture about what burnout is and and what to do about it. But we highlighted a new paper that came out this past year in JAVMA, it's called Psychological Safety, Purpose, Path, and Partnership, Reduce Associate Veterinarian's Desire to Leave. And that basically addresses some leadership skills on how to get more engaged employees and how to help them prevent burnout. We know that approximately 32% of veterinarians indicate that their mental health is the main reason for wanting to leave their current place of employment. So these are all, again, all things that Maybe we don't want to have to consider as equine vets and practice owners, but the fact of the matter is that we do have to if we're going to continue to increase performance in our practices.
0: I'm so glad you brought up those slides because I just, you know, it's one of the key things and especially it so ties into compensation and revenue and so many other factors is there's not, they're not putting out a lot of vet students and a lot of them want to go into equine practice. Instead of burning out the ones we have, let's take care of them and so we have a better profession. So I'm glad you spent a lot of time on that.
2: Keep us all well.
0: Yeah, that was awesome.
2: Let's shift to talking about client and patient care. It was very interesting to me, your slides on referring versus not referring a case. I believe, Genian, those were your slides. Can you talk to us about that?
3: Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, we're all very well-meaning as veterinarians and we want to do the best to help our clients out with their financial situation. And so I know that probably every equine vet has tried to save our client money by skipping some diagnostics and going straight to treatment, right? And I know I've had that conversation with many clients. I know many veterinarians having that conversation all the time. And one prime example of that is equine my lettuce, APM. And what they found is they did a study on that in 2023. It was published. And they found that 88% of the horses who were treated for EPM instead of being referred for a spinal tap had an increased cost of about $1,000 to $2,000. So not saving those clients any money by jumping to treatment instead of diagnostics. That actually ties in with a whole bunch of studies that have been done with the collaborative care group. Also published in 2023, they showed that 25% of clients who aren't referred by their own vet to a specialist, but go and seek specialist care on their own, are less happy with their vet. So they're eight times less likely to recommend and advocate for their primary veterinarian. And then finally, that links to kind of an older study that showed that if you refer dogs with heart issues to a cardiologist, it extends a dog's life by almost 80% and then generates almost 25% more revenue for the primary veterinarian. And so for me, this is just one of those rare things, you know, that like you can, you take every win you can get as a veterinarian. And I'd say this is one of those rare quadruple wins where if you do offer a referral, you have higher client satisfaction because they know their options. They don't need to seek it out on their own. You have potentially higher patient income outcome. You have higher revenue for your primary vet and then obviously higher revenue for your specialist as well. So, you know, it's a good business decision, but it's also good for patient care.
2: Thank you for presenting those percentages and numbers because it's uh, great to think of it in that way. <laughs> the best thing is to present that referral option. Thank you, Jean-Yen.
3: Absolutely.
0: So, Kelly, you were leading the compensation section. So, what you know, there's a few we have some definitely some good uh, news here. So what struck you here when you saw that we there's increases in revenue and compared to compensation in the general of that profession?
5: One of the things that was really exciting to see is that we are closing the compensation gap. Our industry, equine specific, mm-hmm. has seen a jump in those baseline salaries. And we're not caught up yet, but we are making headway, um, which feels really good and I think is an ode to a lot of the work being done by the various groups within AAEP. So it's it's great news for sure.
0: And It was interesting that you had that, you know, that increased compensation is related to increased job satisfaction. So what uh, what are the elements uh, related to the increasing compensation that you, the three of you talk about? particularly, I guess, towards the emergency fees.
5: Right, yeah. We definitely discussed the various ways that compensation can be increased. We know that there's just that age-old, well, how do I afford to pay my people? And so one of the areas that we're really keeping a close eye on because associates and new hires are keeping a close eye on is how they're compensated for their emergency coverage. And we know that it's a major pain point when it comes to equine medicine and and the position and one of the leading causes of burnout, which is a whole other topic area that we went through. Uh, But what the compensation committee through AEP found was some interesting numbers regarding emergencies. One being that 42% of those uh, responding to the survey received no emergency call fees. And then 32% received all of the emergency call fees. So that leaves a large number who are in the middle where they're maybe getting a little bit of compensation. Uh, And so our suggestion and certainly the way that we are going to have to go about this to continue attracting people is really thinking about compensating our veterinarians who are the ones responding to those emergencies, um, just like I did this morning, and making it make sense to have this really second job on top of the day-to-day
3: appointments.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, that they are working a second job. I like that. Last section, this is one I'm particularly interested in, is artificial intelligence in vet care. I mean, 2023 was dominated by chat GPT, So what do we think is going to happen in equine veterinary medicine with AI?
3: This is Such an exciting time, I think, for veterinary medicine and also for so many industries across. I think, particularly for getting rid of some of those menial tasks like we really don't want to be doing. I know there's AI technology right now that a lot of people use for medical record keeping, for example. So, there's technology where you record your entire conversation with the client, including your physical exam and your discussion with them. And it just Puts it all together using AI. So it's not spitting out verbatim what you said. It uses AI to pick out what's important, creates a medical record for you and you edit from there. I hear that's an incredible time saver. There's AI technology that can flip all the radiographs for you to the right way of looking at it so that you don't need to do that. I, I think that potentially a huge time saver for us. My important take home pieces from the research we did on AI was that The AI tools in vet med are not regulated by the government as they are in human medicine. And so I think that kind of dampens enthusiasm just a little bit because companies are not required right now to be transparent about how they validate their results or their algorithm or what kind of training is involved in it. And so I think the biggest thing for us to do is just to be cautious about what we're using and also to get client consent. That's the current AVMA recommendation is if you do use AI, for example, you're using it for your medical records and you have your entire conversation with clients being recorded to practice informed consent and let the client know and let them make an informed decision on whether or not they
4: want that or not.
0: Very interesting.
4: I just want to add, I'm demoing some of the software right now for medical records. And I just find it, to be such a great avenue to dive down to for the idea of well-being and burnout as well. Not just more complete records, not just missing charges that potentially, you know, you forgot you handed out that tube of banamine at the last minute during your, your appointment. But the fact that we hear from so many people that they're staying late or working on their days off to get medical records done, I just think it's something that can't be ignored. And AI is here to stay, right? Like we're not getting away from this. It's only hopefully going to get better and more useful to us. So something to really consider, I think, if you have associates or you yourself, me, myself, are struggling with good medical records and time management.
2: It'll be interesting to see where this goes.
0: I mean, if you can save everybody from doing an hour of medical records a day, like what a win. Huge. So. Well, thank you all. Again, it was an, another excellent session. Um, I, I came out of it learning new things. Uh, I'm sure everybody that attended, and hopefully those who are listening uh, who didn't get a chance to see it either in person or virtually will appreciate just the added bonus of the three of you chatting about it. So once again, thank you to Beringer Engelheim for their support of the AEP Practice Life Podcast. And Stacey, Yin uh, Kelly, thank you all very much. Thank you all. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.
1: Beringer-Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine.